Do it. Send us your hottest takes. Hottest. Ouch. If it ain't blazing, we don't want. Please stop me. We're <laughs> 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 just indulging this way too much. <laughs>
thanks and be okay with that because mm-hmm. I think I'm learning more more and more every day that a journal's a journal no matter if it's Tin House Poetry New Yorker like it's a journal and at the end of the day it's still your work mm-hmm. and at the end of the day you still have the right over your own work and so mm-hmm. it's not a big deal mm-hmm. says the person who's in poetry but <laughs> but like still yeah. like you know it's, it's, yeah. like, it's not really like it's still a journal regardless and so at the end of the day it's just people who are yeah. subjective yeah to other people truth uh let me flip it real quick what is the quickest you've ever gotten back from a journal three days same day 12 hours oh no yes me too (laughs) same day me too shout out to those editors (laughs) really just just being honest knowing what they like and being identify it i feel like i've only ever done that like once but that's you know from like a submission from like three months ago i was like i read it i'm like oh i want it yeah and who's that cut up in the queue also yeah for sure bless you Bless. (laughs) Bless. Bless. <laughs> Speaking of blessed, it was such a blessing to talk with Quentin Baker today in the store, and I think we should get over to that conversation. ASAP. Run, don't walk. Skirt. Oh, hey there. Quick disclaimer. Two of them, actually. One, we know Tin House is shutting down their journal. But we felt cute and the advice still holds. And two, what you're about to hear is an exceptional interview with one of the most intellectually rigorous poets of our time. So you'll want to listen to the whole thing. But the recording is not exactly the quality you've come to expect on the Poet Salon. It was our very first interview, so we had a couple technical difficulties. It might help if, as you listen, you visualize yourself as sitting right on Luther's upper lip. It certainly helps me. Anyway, here you go. This is a pause, yeah. Quentin. How are you doing? I'm great. Yeah. Totally great. How's the uh, fry installation? I, um, oh no. Why don't you tell us about the fry installation first? Describe it. Um, yeah, it's a, it's an installation based on my manuscript in progress, um, which is itself based on the 1841 slave revolt aboard a ship called the Creole. And um, the show is, um, so the manuscript is erasure poem, blackout redactions, and then invented form poems. And so the show is like that writ large. It's very big versions of the erasure poems and then very large projections of the invented form. Can you talk a little about the process of converting like poems on a page into an experience for people to walk through? Um, yeah, it's hard. <laughs> <laughs> it was hard. I don't, I'm not a visual artist. I don't have, like, I'm not a polymath. I don't paint, I don't take pictures. I don't sculpt. I don't do paper mache, <laughs> I don't do collage. So I like I just write. So really finding my way in to that was hard because I'm I mean I guess we probably all are, but I, I consider myself a very like craft based, rigor based poet. Mm-hmm. So having to engage with a visual medium and not having that rigor and not having that craft to call on was really, really hard for me. Because uh, I was like, I don't know basically what the fuck I'm doing. And I'm trying to, like, I, I still, I want to, you know, communicate what I want to communicate. And I want to, like, do that in a way that's visually interesting now with paint. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, it was just, it was a process. Um, and I mean, I'm, I was lucky enough to, to work, the people that work at the Fry are fantastic. Um, Amanda Don and the curator, Shane Montgomery, um, runs the installation stuff and, and Rush. All the, all the people that I worked with were so helpful in like pulling the things out of my brain and then using their expertise and techniques um, and so, so we could get where, where we wanted to go with the show. Um, but yeah, it was just, it was a lot of trial and error. Um, and then also, but the cool thing was it was an opportunity to use like the whole space mm-hmm. and to like make it 
kinetic in a way that it can't be on a page. Um, so that that was a, a fun a fun challenge, but it was a challenge for sure. Poetry in general is so embodied on the level of the breath, but I feel like this exhibit is embodied in this whole new way because you're physically, I'm, I mean, in my imagination of you creating this, you're pushing paint across a page that's as tall or taller than you are, and our guests can't see you, but you're a tall individual. So I'm curious to know what that felt like to be using your whole body in relation to poetry in that way. First of all, thank you. I'm not quite 10 feet tall. Nine <laughs> <laughs> eleven. I am. I'm not, I'm not that tall. Oh my tall. god. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, the, the sheer physicality of it was kind of ridiculous. And also, there was like a real time crunch because um, I painted it in the museum. Um, and so they had to, they took down the show before my show. And then I had a period of about two days wow. to, um, to paint it all. So I was there for like, I don't know, like 16, 15, 16 hours over two days. Wow. Um, my back hurt. Yeah, yeah, my everything hurt. My feet hurt, my wrist hurt, my shoulder hurt. It was, uh, but yeah, so just the physical act of, um, of being in there was pretty wild. But the thing that got me that I didn't really think about was like how, <laughs> this is so stupid, how big the words were. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. Ooh, that resonates on many levels. Like there was, um, because like this, this, this text isn't, you know, it's a Senate document um, detailing the, the Creole case, it's like not pleasant to mm -hmm. read or look at. And so to be in it and have it be that fucking big, I was like, I was, I was feeling, I was really feeling some type of way. I was mm -hmm. like, really, I was like, it's literally surrounding you. Yeah. And I was, so I'm like, like I want shit. to destroy it, mm -hmm. which is, was my initial impulse when, when starting the thing way back. But then in this, in this like big giant format, I was just like, so it was it was pretty it was it was intense but even like thinking about like how poetry of the body and how that was a physical um experience but erasure is such a physical experience as well right and to have to do it on that level um when your body's hurting right to hurt a text like that um it's, it's violent in a couple ways right like of course obliterating a text right and then also like your body physically like saying like stop doing this right but the will to keep going so i want to know more about thoughts on erasure and how and how you see that working um one towards violence and also in kind of um extracting violence um on a text that is itself violent right yeah absolutely like there's um there's definitely like for me there was a real intentional like aspect to the violence from my end mm -hmm. like as a response to this kind of original violence or this original erasure so that's like uh, because the text is only the white crew members and the white like diplomats and shit who were in the bahamas um for the u.s and the uk at the time um and then there's just a complete absence of any of the voices of the 135 people on board the ship, then it really became for me about, yeah, about like perpetrating a kind of violence, mm -hmm. the same kind of violence against this text. Um, and like, you know, like Fanon's words ring in my head all the time in that like, he said, you know, in black skin, white masks to undo this like, gratuitous violence requires gratuitous violence itself mm -hmm. and so that's what i was thinking about and you know mm -hmm. two days day, however many hours in the thing i was thinking about like that this is that obviously it's like um you know just, just art but <laughs> um but it was it was trying to be in, in in conversation with that um that move or that impulse to to undo violence with violence 
it's almost scary in a way it feels scary and have the text be so big it's like battling the text it's like it's like they're it's, it's the, it's, it was made to erase you as a person automatically right but then it's so big so it's like i'm trying to do it again so it's like literally battling text which sounds crazy to battle words but in a sense you're literally like battling words it's scary i don't know if i can do it and i might have like i was real worried about losing because mm. i was like I, the shit is already installed on the walls if i fuck up there's no backup mm-hmm. there's like so and then yes I'm, I'm like i have i have to like summon the physical energy to like do it. so yeah it really was i really did feel like i was in a fight which is <laughs> really throwing hands with <laughs> yeah things like considering the implications of like the physicality um and like let's take the sort of battle metaphor further i'm curious like what gave you heart during that like sort of 16 hour stretches um honestly i just blacked out probably mm-hmm. like i really like i just i feel like literally and figuratively um no like i really i feel like uh It's the same thing, I think, that makes me work hard anyway. It's just like, uh, I feel I feel that I have a, a debt to pay. Um, like when, because it, when we're talking about like blackness as a social position, we're talking about like the realities of chattel slavery, the afterlife of slavery, like blackness is non-being, all those things. Um, what we're talking about is survival. Mm-hmm. And the, um, like not to valorize trauma or like celebrate pain, but there's a very real thing that like, I am only here because certain people survived due to dumb luck, incredible strength, circumstance, whatever. So like, I feel like really like in my blood that there is a debt that I, I'm like indebted to this survival to, and the survival that I'm engaged with myself to do whatever it is I can to bear witness to it, to articulate it clearly. Um, so yeah, just really, it's, I just want to. I just want to get it right, mm-hmm. um, and so that's what that's what drives me constantly. It's what drove me in that museum, and like I'm, I was like, I, I could fuck up, but I'm not gonna fuck up. Um, like I'm gonna find a way to get this right. Mm-hmm. We're gonna move on from erasure soon, but before we do, I'm curious: were there any other forms of erasure that you considered before you landed on? this like black paint or black, it looked like black Sharpie in the original version maybe, um, which seems so similar to like government censored documents, but Mm -hmm. also yours is much rougher and it's moving in different directions, which I love. Like there are strokes that go vertical um, as opposed to just neatly straight across. So it seems like it's both drawing from that very violent tradition, maybe for lack of a better word and, and changing it but are there any other forms of erasure that you played with before you landed on that one? Um, yeah, I, uh, so the, the Fry Show is paint on vinyl. Um, and we played with a couple things before and then and landed on that. But for, for me and the, the work on the page, um, before I started using Sharpies, actually, um, <laughs> I started doing with Whiteout. Mm-hmm. Like the mm-hmm. the old school bottle with the weird brush that gets all gross, but that shit. There's a fume yeah. associated with it, a but different kind of physicality, right? Yeah, but also it was because um, I started out wanting to 
like mimic a page so the white out mm. like mm. but then I, but then it i just didn't like so the way it's more gentle and more violent it, with this particular text to be yeah. using white it there was like a a certain there was a certain kind of intimacy with how the like a erased or redacted language was being treated that I didn't like. I liked mm -hmm. the space that it gave, the language that was left, but I didn't like the the lack of of weight. Like you couldn't see everything that was obliterated because it's so. Mm -hmm. Then I yeah I went I went to to Sharpie, um, and then and then that was that was that. An idea that surfaces throughout your first book is an idea of doubleness, double self, double history, double America, double dialect. Um, most obviously this doubleness in your work feels in conversation with Du Bois's idea of double consciousness, um, but the collective eyes and singular we's of your poems, there's also a sense of accumulation and a collectivity that feels at times less like a psychic affliction and more like an interconnectedness maybe or just like a human complexity so i'm hoping you'll talk a little bit about your relationship or just the relationship of your poetry to this idea of doubledness yeah so um is it is is a high secret nobody knows um <laughs> but when so i graduated from with an MFA program, you know, you have a thesis and shit. And um, so there was like steps between what my thesis turned into my first manuscript, which was not this book. But um, the first manuscript was, was about 80 or so poems and they all shared um, titles. They were mm -hmm. pairs. They shared oh. the same title. Mm -hmm. um, and that was the whole. That was a whole collection, and because um, yeah, I do I do have this obsession with with doubling, um, just with the with the ways that it makes um, poems in a collection which already do echo and correspond, as Jack Spicer says, echo and correspond that much more. Um, so it's just that, so just the idea of having like, and they weren't none of them were next to each other they were all like kind of distant so it was mm -hmm. a way for me to like try and control the echoes across like mm -hmm. that's so interesting far distances but so some of those poems a few of those poems survived um into into this living republic but then i also still obviously keep returning to that um that idea and i think it definitely like you know like double consciousness I feel like every every black person probably has an intrinsic understanding of double consciousness. And then when you come across W.E.B. Du Bois for the first time, you're like, oh shit, that's mm -hmm. real. Um, you know, you know, you know when you move watched flesh, um, what that's like. And then you know when your survival is dependent upon, you know, the whims of strangers you learn you learn how to see yourself how others see you um and that kind of um perspective i think is like i couldn't keep it out of my work uh, even if i wanted to um yeah because it like i said i'm interested in survival and that's like what's been core that's always core is like you have to understand what it looks like um and of course like Du Bois double consciousness is is talking about um you know blackness in relation to like hegemony and whiteness but I think there's also like um I think there's there's all these other different kinds of consciousnesses that you need to like develop um with even within your own communities like the ways in which um internalized oppression and sub-oppression like manifests itself as violence like within people that you're in community with becomes another thing that you have to, so there's just like there's all these different um ways that you have to learn how to see yourself 
externally that kind of, um, you know, go again, when Fodan says overdetermined from the outside, I think this is, it's my way of like addressing that overdetermination um, through, through like a strong understanding of interiority. I, pronoun. Minor gods tell me I is through. Say it's run gold medal heat and won. Now needs ice bath, quiet time. Minor gods tell me I is gauche. We are post discovery. Minor gods tell me get I out your poem. Transcend. Hmm. I tell minor gods your eye cast wide shadow. I was and am that umbra. Your eye authenticated with God blood, separated by torque from king, civilized, history. My eye popped out when lights came on and nigger hit the floor, dropped, not cool to be held anymore. When I sit still, my body breaks apart, tenderized and torn by the eye I haven't been. I and my head infects, ingrown, pulped against the Mississippi, the killing rage, the silence. In the worst wreck of my inner space, there is a note. Go to the page, and I return to the eyes like mine, precious, partially crushed, and we lend shape to one another in this glittering republic. I love that poem so much. I'm, I'm curious, so your background, or I guess your entry in writing was hip hop. Yeah. Um, check out Grey Matters. Oh, okay. We're going to put the SoundCloud in the show notes. Um, but I am interested because persona, double consciousness and persona, and sort of, I guess, like the awareness of that doubleness, which is obviously prevalent throughout your poetry writing, I think is a fundamental tenet of hip hop mm -hmm. in a lot of ways, um, starting with like the naming of an MC. I'm curious, uh, do you see that through line? Do you see sort of a connectedness? Did you think of as you were writing raps? Were you thinking of doubleness? Like, were you thinking of that persona? I don't really think I was thinking this shit. <laughs> I mean, I was, I was so young. Um, How old were you? I don't know, like three or four. <laughs> Popped out the room. Like, no, I, you know, I mean, I started rapping when I was like 19. Um, but I've been writing verses, you know, since I was like fourteen or fifteen. So it was like it was like ages of nineteen to like twenty five or twenty six, and um, you know, I think for me, rap shit was just like I just knew I wanted to make art, and I just wanted to make shit that sounded dope, hmm. and that's really as far as I went with it. I felt I felt like I wanted to tell like some kind of truth or um, speak on something, but really like all of my rap shit is just like about me. It's just about like my sad ass <laughs> life and trauma ties existence. Um, so it's really just me like wrestling and grappling with shit. So there really wasn't a lot of thinking beyond that. When I was you're just, saying it's just that as if like that's not what so much great art is. So I'm really interested in the belittling of, <laughs> just to be as hard on you as you so often are on yourself. Oh, that's fine. You know, like and how do you see that in relation to what you're doing now that doesn't seem like that? Yeah, and to complicate that further, right? Like so much of your work, you know, from the installation to this glittering republic is like reaching for, um, like external signifiers and like external story and history to like tell your story. And so there's to me like such a departure from what you're saying about how you approach rap to like the poetry that shows up in the world. So could you talk about that too? <laughs> in addition yeah. to that plan? Well, um, I mean I do have a PhD in kicking my own ass. <laughs> so I don't I don't mind if other people do it. Um no and I do, never mind, don't do that. Careful <laughs> what you say no. out here. Like yeah, I, I will say what was lacking in my rap shit was any kind of conscious 
framework or heuristic or like a through line of a lineage um, or other work that I was in communication with. To me, that's that's um, that requires like a lot of thinking, a lot of rigor. Like I had people that I liked, rappers that I liked, but it wasn't like my work. I didn't consider my work in conversation with theirs. Um, and I didn't really consider my work as part of like a larger art form. I was just trying to make shit that sounded good and felt like authentic. Um, so yeah, that's that. So so with the poetry, um, you know that that externalizing, I think is for me important because um, like it's my 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 rap shit was important to me. And it may have been important to other people. There were people that connected to people, people dug it, but it really wasn't built to connect to anything larger or broader. And I like to think, and I hope, and I try to construct my work, my poetry in a way that it does and can connect to these larger, broader things while also still being like, obviously localized to me because I'm the one. Mm-hmm. But that it, the other, so there is like a, a more of an outward connectivity that I don't think was in in my music. As a matter of craft, uh, we I mean we've kind of talked about this before, but like in writing raps, right? Uh, that constraint of the rhyme is also like the propulsive sort of creative force behind it, um, and some of the more fascinating rhymes, right? Like the really dopest rhymes are the like really unexpected, surprising sort of slippages that happen. And I'm curious, like when you're writing poetry, without that inherent sort of constraint, how do you seek uh, that slippage? Well, so I think that there is the same inherent constraint. Um, it's not rhyme necessarily. It can be if you want to be Robert Frost um, <laughs> or Gwendolyn Brooks or John Dunn or a whole bunch of different people Ron is not dead um, but really for me the real constraint in hip hop well not now I don't want to be one of them old niggas who's like oh you <laughs> but for real like you did have to be on beat for the most part there were some people who made a living not being on beat back in in my day but for the most part you would have got clowned the fuck off the stage and out the building if like you couldn't ride the beat so really like the rhyme wasn't the thing I mean obviously it was there but you know you can pull a freeway and only rhyme like once every 10 minutes um but you had to ride the beat well. Mm-hmm. You had to like demonstrate. That's how you. That's how you demonstrated craft and mastery. Is your ability to flow over an instrumental and in, in conjunction with, and also as counterpoints. Because there's like that that moving between like like being like contrapuntal with the beat, mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. also like moving in conjunction with. So like that tension and interplay, I think, is still present in the poem because like the kind of sonic landscape that you set up as a poet within like the weight of the line that I'm still, so I'm still thinking about the weight of the line, like the sonic weight of the line, the Mm -hmm. same way I was thinking about the sonic weight of the line when I was writing to a beat. It's just that I'm now responsible for like determining what like sonic pattern I want the poem to follow. There's not an instrumental to follow. So I have to create like that as a mixture of like tenor and emotional atmosphere, what the fuck ever. But yeah, it's still, it's still, I'm still writing to the weight of the line, the sonic weight of the line. Yeah. And also, I still use a lot of like rhyme and shit. <laughs> I think eternal rhyme is dope. Theodore, shout out Theodore Rethke. Yes. Um, I'm also, I mean, I'm curious too, like when you were talking about, uh, you use space on a page in a way that to me seems like the instrumental like that space is almost instrumental i think i've seen a lot of your poems where in my head before i hear you read them or knowing that i've heard you read like i can follow it along like a track like there are single word enjambments that are sort of out there that almost serve as ad-libs right and like you definitely do that 
Like, that's intentional. Yeah? Yeah, for sure. Someone that I really love is Lorenzo Thomas, who is, um, was, past now, but um, a great poet um, who was in the Umber group with, like, Baraka and all these people. Um, but he's also a great, like, critical theorist. He's, he has this great book. Um, what the fuck is it called? I think it's called Extraordinary Measures. Um, but in this book, he talks about how, like, the poem on the page is the score sheet. Hmm. It's like how it should, it's how the reader knows to score the poem. It's a musical. The, the poem on the page is a musical composition. So yeah, like I've always approached it that way, um, and then it's just gotten more and more pr pronounced as I've like become more comfortable with um, being in that in that tradition mm -hmm. that, that Lorenzo was talking about. But yeah, like that's. It's great that you say that. That's exactly <laughs> what the fuck I want. Like, yeah, that's how you should be able to pick up the page. And I mean, in a perfect world, you wouldn't have had to hear me read. Mm -hmm. But if you've heard me read, then it, may, it will make sense on the page sonically. I'm thinking about um, the page and content and how a lot of your poems, um, which they should be doing, um, the form matches the content. Um, I'm thinking of poems like A Party at the Center or something. I don't know Yeah, and how like the title itself is almost lynched, right? Uh, from, from the actual like body of the poem, right? Or poems like Surrender, where after a while, by the third time we get to um, the third poem, Surrender, there's an emptiness there, right? And it's just like surrendering to this emptiness. And so I'm so curious about how you approach getting to certain forms when it comes to certain contents um like what does that process look like for you yeah that's that's a great question because i think um you know i heard that all the time um when i was studying in school that like form mirrors content form mirrors content form mirrors content um and i never really thought of myself as doing it but yeah, I, I think that it's it's just like it's out of I think like a really like inherent interest in the craft and like the poem as an object. Mm -hmm. I want the form that the poem is in to carry its weight, and I don't want anything ever in a poem to be accidental everything's a mm -hmm. choice so it really it really comes out of that desire to have everything be an author choice that i'm like and then also that it's just like an opportunity um it's just more space to work in mm. i think like because really what it comes out of is like um a real interest to never have any like received best practice so I wanted to be able to, if someone asked me about any aspect of my poem, I wanted to be able to say, this is why I did that. Mm -hmm. I didn't want my poems to be left justified because the word processor starts left justified. I didn't mm -hmm. want, you know, I just, I wanted everything to be crafted. So mm -hmm. when, I'm think, when I'm thinking about how a form Response to its content. It really is just like it's the same way I'm thinking about how does an image fit or how does um, You know, how am I going to use in jamming in this line? Like I, it's just it's just part of the overall choice to serve Whatever the I, I feel like the poem is is trying to accomplish Can I ask how much of that is instinct and how much of that is like Really hyper deliberate like this has to be 10 spaces out not 12 spaces out. You know what I mean? um 99% of the time it's hyper deliberate okay like I, I feel like there's a there's a point at which that deliberateness becomes instinct mm. Maybe. Mm -hmm. but it's I'm still like I like it's a, it has to be a tab in three spaces like <laughs> two tabs too much I'm not going to space this all out it's not going to work um, so yeah I think there is like there's that point at which it becomes muscle memory mm. but then there's also a way that I, I resist that because I don't really want anything to become muscle memory to the point where I'm not questioning it, questioning its purpose and worth and like in service to the poem. Um, 
because I'm really I'm really concerned about that. I'm really I really don't I really don't want any choice in a poem to be made automatically. And obviously, like mm. like I'm gonna write in English probably. That's like, <laughs> I don't really speak any other languages, you know, but like I, but for the I really I really do I really do want to be making everything a conscious choice. I don't want to be caught by surprise by my own decisions. I want to be caught by surprise by the result of those decisions, but I don't want to be caught by surprise by, by the things that I'm choosing to do. So being from Seattle, growing up in Seattle, um, but not really being part of the poetry scene at all growing up, like I was not really into it like that. Um, I was a dancer. That was my life growing up. Um, so... I'm always surprised when I like meet or see or read poems by people from Seattle. Um, but even when I do read those poems, there's there's this, like a Seattle listness in in these poems, right? And so, and someone who now writes about Seattle a lot now, like having moved away and like now I'm like writing about Seattle way more than I've ever expected in my life. I now kind of expect to see Seattle and Seattle lights people's poems. And so I'm curious asking you, like, how do you see Seattle working in your poems or not working in your poems? And how has it either inspired you both in a way you're like, mm, I love Seattle, but girl, you sit over there for this poem, you know, stuff like that. So I'm wondering, like, how Seattle has influenced your work, if it has influenced your work. Um, and you and do you feel like your poems are like Seattle-ness? <laughs> Yeah, Seattle-ness. I like that. Um, yeah, so it's, I didn't, like when I was growing up, I played basketball, you know, so I wasn't, and then I left and started rapping. So I came back with an MFA and all this other shit and trying to get into the poetry scene at like mm -hmm. 25. And, and it's funny because, so you're like the third person to ask me that question, I felt like in the past month. And I don't think anyone's ever asked me that question before. So I'm like, I'm having, I have a difficult time <laughs> with it though. Because I think, yeah, like Seattle is not in my work. I don't write about Seattle. Mm. I think maybe there's like two poems of mine that obliquely reference Seattle. Mm. But I think, I think the way that Seattle shows up in my work is as like a kind of psychic landscape. Mm. There's a certain reality to like what growing up here has meant in terms of like, accumulation and discard mm. basically um like the ways in which uh seattle is like seattle is this like beautiful gilded like horrifying place mm -hmm. that's like extremely wealthy and extremely privileged and extremely open-minded <laughs> but is also so profoundly violent in its own like self-assuredness mm -hmm. um and also so like sh like strong in the way in which it casts its like assured gaze mm -hmm. that when it falls on you you can't help but like feel and buckle underneath it mm -hmm. so i think that like that kind of feeling and that kind of buckling is in my work mm -hmm. like, the resistance and survival through that is in my work mm -hmm. but it's more so in like seattle as like a paragon or like Seattle has like a heuristic for the ways in which whiteness is violent and destructive mm. more so than like the landscape itself or mm -hmm. I mean also I don't I don't go outside that much <laughs> um, <laughs> so you know because uh, when I was at when I was at Kavit Khanum uh, in June um, Dante you know Dante mm -hmm. he uh, <laughs> he like looked at me and he was like you know I'm not gonna do his accent. <laughs> he was like, you know, it makes sense that you've lived in Portland, Oregon, Portland, Maine, and Seattle. Cause he's like, you have these broader considerations and interests in your work. And these places allow you to explore that without them being overbearing. And that made sense to me because it's like San Francisco becomes a character. New York mm -hmm. becomes a character. Like all of these big, literary places mm -hmm. become, like so oppressive in your work you can't help but respond to them but seattle has like it just exists as this lens as this like, mm -hmm. landscape and it doesn't have that kind of oppressive so it enables me to like look through it 
out broader into these broader avenues and channels but it doesn't have i don't have to reckon with it right i would have to reckon with the bronx or brooklyn or los angeles or some shit you've said in a past interview that the violence that so many of us endure on a daily basis is unfathomable yet we are required if we consider ourselves possible of participating in a just society to fathom it and all your poems but i feel like especially these recent really long poems uh, you really seem to be engaging with what i think of as this ethics of fathoming and it feels like the length of the poems the expansiveness is a part of that fathoming like you you can't maybe place the self in relation to a historical event like the creole revolt without sprawling without moving multi-directionally and i'm really interested in this recent work and that ethics especially in relation to the first book mm. because it feels like that ethics has always been there but that literal expansiveness has not always been there and so i'm curious did writing that debut open doors that allowed for this recent work or were there types of poems you could only write after publishing a first book hmm. i think it's just um i hope that i will continue to develop um and so i look at my first book and i'm happy that it exists um i don't write like that anymore um, things that I was concerned with in that book I'm no longer concerned with so um, I consider that part of my progression can you be more specific when you say yeah like so that? I think um, there's like there's there's a certain like address in this book um, where there there's like a there's a you in that book or there's like a directionality in that book that I think is pointed um, towards like pointed towards what comes at me and folks like me um and like that's interested in, in drawing like a certain kind of line around whiteness i mean it, it's obviously i'm not saying this is what's happening but it's like claudia rankin and citizen right mm -hmm. and the you that she uses in that book and the kind of address that she's making that also used to be the kind of address that i was interested in I am no long. I no longer have any interest in telling whiteness about itself, or speaking to or addressing whiteness in any way, shape, or form. Mm -hmm. I just don't care, mm -hmm. and I don't think, for me, is useful or helpful. The world does not need another second of consideration of whiteness um, from me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, it. it a lot of people need a lot of shit from themselves and from the people around them but for me yeah i really just wanted to be able to enter into that sprawl enter into that fathoming of the unfathomable the people who and the lives and the positionalities who are have been and continue to be obliterated to meditate on as sadia hartman would say the enormity of the breach um because this i mean the entire all of civil society is built around a certain kind of catering to or centering of a certain kind of voice and perspective and i just don't want to do that um because i think that in of itself is a kind of occluding violence that it's 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 a forced injection of a perspective that really can't if i'm if i'm considering black interiority then any kind of symbol or symbiotics of the white imagination can't be present except mm -hmm. as that externalizing force of course it's always there it's the reason why all of this exists but i can't like that's not it's not to me it doesn't honor how we attend to ourselves mm -hmm. Um, it's it's an it's a public construction for public consumption. It's why there's a white character in Black Panther. 
Like, mm -hmm. I, and I just don't want a white character in Black Panther, and I probably don't also want Black Panther to like come out in like a major Hollywood. It's probably like Black Panthers in somebody's basement. I don't know. It's not. <laughs> if, there's a way in which if you want your shit to be public, and if you want your shit to be like broadly facing, then it has to make a certain concession mm -hmm. to like whiteness to whiteness and like the ways in which whiteness warps and destroys reality. And mm -hmm. I can't do, I can't attend to that and then also do what I feel like is telling the truth. Yeah. So I let that one go. I love thinking about the literal expansiveness of this recent work in relation to your interest in the black interiority because it feels like it is really enacting the expansiveness and the complexity that so many of the dominant narratives have denied um, for so long. Um, it feels like another, like Luther was saying, relationship between form and content in that way. Yeah, yeah, there's this, um, so, Sadia Hartman is, is, is someone I love. She's amazing. Um, she has this book called Scenes of Subjection, which is like long and wonderful and difficult and hard. Um, but I think it really, she's wrestling with like what it, what blackness means like in the afterlife of slavery mm -hmm. um what it means that enormity of that breach like what it means to to survive to have to steal yourself and she talks about this this great thing she talks about like the origin of the phrase stealing time and um she's talking about when enslaved people on plantations would like dip out into the woods to have a party or would go down the road to visit their boo with the other plantation <laughs> and she's talking literally about like them stealing themselves like you had to steal your own time mm. in order to like have a kind of human connection and that kind of that i can't attend to like what that kind of theft means and feels mm. like what 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 fred moton would say that that kinky entanglement i can't attend <laughs> to that if i'm also addressing it so that you know the misses and the massa can understand like mm -hmm. or even from that perspective even i can't talk about it from the porch i can only talk about it mm -hmm. from the woods out in the hinterlands like mm -hmm. you know in, the, in that like kind of cartography beyond mm -hmm. in the woods hidden away from any site yeah. um, because that it's by design yeah. that theft has to take for the theft to be successful it has to take place out of sight so i then in my own work want to want to attend to and honor that kind of out of sightness that kind of hmm. like that hinterland cartography that's what i'm really interested in and like in like moton and and, and daniel mackey and you know Vesey philip these are all people that attend to this mm -hmm. brooks attends to this in, in a way too and these are all the people that i want to to be in conversation with and be in community with with my work like that's that's what i'm interested in in the extreme form that reminds me of like Henry Box Brown like writing from inside the box like you can't maybe write from outside or inside you're mailing yourself to freedom yo Henry Box Brown yeah I love that part of Tyamba's book um cause yeah that that what's happening in that fucking box this motherfucker put himself in a box <laughs> and like mailed his goddamn self like that is yeah you you have and you so yeah you have to write about Henry Box Brown from inside the box. You can't write mm. about Henry Box Brown from like the audience of his retelling while he's on stage. That's not that's not it. It's 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 the reason why he put himself in the box and it's the moments when he's in the box and then it's that moment right before he emerges. Like those are the things that I think you know, that's that's what I'm interested in. I feel like I have things to say, <laughs> but I don't know how to put them in language. I'm just, I'm so stuck on the idea of stealing time. Like there's that, that whole process, right? To steal, to steal back time in a way, kind of stealing your body in that sense, you know, like, yeah, it's high mass the body. Cause that's what we're talking about. Like they, they were one off sneak off into the woods and down the street and it's literally stealing their body back. Um, I'm not kind of, I'm kind of stuck on that. I'm just kind of like thinking about that a lot. What that looks like nowadays, right? Like what the for poetry and how do you steal back time for poetry, right? I think it's I think oh, I'm talking now. So I think 
it's something something to do with how like Phyllis Wheatley learned how to write sonnets, right? Stealing that back and using it against them, right? For some reason, that's linking to me as stealing back time, and I don't know why that is, but something about yeah, using the master's tools, <laughs> right? Um, to kind of then progress in some way. Um, I don't know. Yeah, it's linking. I don't know why it's linking, but it's linking to me. No, I think actually. I think Phyllis Wheatley is like a great um, example, and like she's obviously doing something slightly different, where she's in plain sight, and right? Sort of undressing this form, and you know, really hitting it with the remix, like, <laughs> you know, encoding it in a certain way, right? So it's it is unable to be understood by right. people who she took it from. And it's right. that kind of like encryption or like scrambling mm -hmm. that also plays a part. Cause like um, in Scenes of Subjection, Hartman also talks about um, when women would get pregnant on the plantation, mm -hmm. like the, the like trickery that they would engage with their like ignorant white masters about mm -hmm. like how they needed to rest like they could have worked but they like played up in illness mm -hmm. all these kinds of things where it's like this sort of um it's it's playful but it's also obviously the stakes are incredibly high and dangerous right but it's it's a way of manipulating and taking control of mm. your own in this case like phyllis Willis the sonnet in this case the, your body is your <laughs> right so like trying really like finding a way to reassert control even though you don't have control even though at any point in time at all slit your throat or whip you like there's no control mm -hmm. but it's that um it's in that attempt and mm. and and city of hard minutes of calling them like flawed victories like there's no way you're not going there's no such thing as liberation there's mm -hmm. no way to free yourself from either the slave position or like the position of blackness is social death and non-being but there mm -hmm. is this way in which you can give yourself and we can't give each other flawed victories and it's in those moments that we that's like mm. again that's like that's that's henry in the box that's mm -hmm. him giving himself a flawed victory he can't mail himself to actual freedom he can mail mm. himself about the fuck where he was mm. you know and so like those are the things so i think there's absolutely a link between like what phyllis is doing and mm. and the ways in which you know people still find a way now i mean this is what like i think essentially um you know something like sorry to bother you mm -hmm. or whatever i can't remember sorry for about yeah mm -hmm. about that kind of thing as well like and uh well it's really about the danger of losing yourself in that kind of play yeah but yeah that like how do you how do you navigate there's no way to win but you're mm -hmm. still playing right what does that mean for you which is like a body in time. Right. Yes. <laughs> well, really, it's a body in space. Ooh. Right? Because, like, the, the idea is that, um, like, black people, black flesh can't inhabit time. Mm -hmm. in, the way in, in the ways in which, like, black people cannot, and blackness cannot move time forward. Like, we don't have access to a chronology. We don't have access to a way to, like, order time or make it proceed or recede. All we can do is fill up space and be like commodity, be cargo, be something that like humanity is drawn up against. But like, and I think to me, like something like the Civil Rights Act puts this in like sharp relief. Like you can throw your body up against the political machine. You can like be, have dogs set on you, have a hose sprayed on you. For what? For like a bunch of legislators to agree to move time forward. Mm -hmm. to the point where you can vote yeah. but like all you can do is take up your space violently mm -hmm. and in a like in a way that's disrupting enough to convince someone else who has access to a chronology to like actually move time forward and so there's like a very so it's really like to the ways in which when Celia Hartman's talking about stealing time she also could have said something about creating time mm -hmm. like you're actually like 
because you really when you're stealing time you're, t you're taking yourself outside of time and that's what's so mm -hmm. transgressive and what's so dangerous because there is a chronology set up for you that you are meant to adhere to and when you steal yourself and when you steal time you are now setting yourself outside of that chronology mm -hmm. and there's no greater risk than that Thank you to Quentin for blessing our ears with this wonderful intellectual work. Thank you to Open Books, A Poem Emporium. Like what you hear, hit that subscribe button. Rate us five stars. Five. Juicy stars. Ooh, juicy stars. And lastly, but not least, follow us on Twitter at Poet Salon Pod and send us your questions, your thoughts, your beliefs, your morals, your ethics. Send us your what you believe in. Mm. Send us your auntie, uncle, sister, cousin-in-law's best mac and cheese recipe to the Poet Salon Pod at gmail.com. Do it. The White House people wouldn't listen. Now they quiet as a church mouse. I don't want to play house. I was born to run this. Building up my fortress. Stacking up the mattress. You want to weaponize this? Gonna show you these hands. Gonna take on these streets. Gonna show you who's man's. Cause my crew mob steady. Feddy and spaghetti. Feddy and spaghetti. Feddy and the... Oh.